uh, Pastor Kevin did the, the G90 challenge. Um, we just decided to give it a try. Um, we're really, really nervous about it at first. And I thought, okay, we're just gonna try this, see how it goes. And we um, just decided he had kind of emphasized making sure that the first, you know, part of our money every month was taken out and that we were not pushing it to the back burner. That's what we typically would do, would wait and see what was left over. And then we'd say, oh, well, we might could give this, we might give that. And uh, so we decided, okay, we're gonna add it just to our regular bills every month and it's gonna come out just, you know, like a regular bill and we'll just see what happens. <laughs> and uh, it was very scary, I'll be honest. It was, it was very scary <laughs> because, um, I mean, we really were living paycheck to paycheck. You know, we really, we didn't have any to spare. About the second month, I guess, into it was when we were just like, oh, this is really tough. You know, we are just really trusting you that we're gonna be okay because we have literally, at that point, I didn't have the money that I got <laughs> to make my car payment. Honestly, what, the next day, the yeah. following day at work, I was, I'm a dental hygienist. I was back with a patient, and the girl from up front came and said, Is Shelly, somebody's here to see you. And so I said, Okay, so I got up, and it was my aunt. And out of nowhere, she said, I just wanted to, to bring you this, and handed me a check, and it's a astronomical amount of money <laughs> that was completely out of nowhere. And I not only made my car payment that month, but I completely was able to pay my car off. You know, pay my entire car off with that and just, so it was like God was saying, all right, you worried about this car payment? Let's get rid of it for you. You know, it was just like, I and called tied. him. Uh -huh. And tithed on the, oh, yeah. uh, and we paid yeah. it off and tithed <laughs> off the money we got. First thing we gotta do is tithe, tithe from that amount. Don't yes. forget to tithe from that amount. You know, ever since then, it just hasn't, it just hasn't been a question. We just, you know, it's such a, a trust thing that, that that's really you just have to trust there's just never been a time when we haven't had what we needed plus some plus we're some. just we're in better financial state now way better than we were a couple years ago and this is with adding this you know significant amount of money more that's coming out every month it's just it, there's it's a win-win we started doing the Dave Ramsey the get out of debt debt free and uh, the, one of the main principles that he talks about is 10%, you know, religiously tithe. And uh, he talks about all his success in doing this. And, you know, we followed that. And it was just kind of a nice reinforcement. You know, it's, it's God's money to begin with. It's not ours. It's his. But he's allowed us to have. And when he sees that he can trust us, you know, with what, what we'll do with that money. It's just, you know, okay, I've, you can, I've seen that you've done what I've told you to with this amount, then maybe we'll try a little bit more, a little bit more, you know, but I, I just really think that, you know, you have to show him that you're gonna do what he says to do with it and there, he's gonna bless you. There's no way around it. I mean, just what we have given, we have gotten back tenfold. All right. Good morning. Uh, thank you so much for being here. And if you're watching us online right now, thank you for being here. If you're in our overflow room, we welcome you as well. 
As you can see today, we are starting a new series called Plastic Pork Chops. Uh, I know that's an odd title. It comes from an experience that I had a little over a decade ago. Uh, this was Christmas of 2010, and our oldest daughter at the time was almost two years old. And that Christmas, we decided to get her a toy kitchen. Uh, you've seen these before. They're about five feet wide, four feet high. A uh, little microwave, a little stove, a little oven, a little refrigerator, cabinets on it. It's got all these buttons, a little sink, all those things. Uh, it came in a box with 150 different pieces um, and instructions written by someone who did not speak English as their first language. So Christmas Eve, after a couple hours and some words I never should have said, uh, we got it assembled, put it in the den... Christmas morning came, she came downstairs, and it was the hit present. Uh, she walked in, we couldn't get her to open any other presents. All she wanted to do was to play with this little toy kitchen that we had gotten for her. Now, along with the kitchen, we got her a box of play food with hundreds of different plastic food items. So plastic fried chicken, plastic french fries, Plastic vegetables, plastic fruit, came with plastic plates and plastic forks and plastic glasses. And she was supposed to keep all of these in this little plastic buggy grocery cart that we had for. But as you well know, if you've ever had kids, they ended up everywhere. For years and years, even when she was done with that toy, I would find these plastic food pieces and plates behind couches or dressers or underneath chairs just forever and ever. They were everywhere. So that morning, she spent a lot of time playing with the kitchen, getting used to all the buttons, pushing all the buttons, making all the noise, having fun. And then at some point, she decided that she wanted to make a meal for me. So she took a plastic piece of fried chicken and plastic french fries and plastic bread and plastic orange and maybe a few other plastic items. And she brought a plate over to me where I was sitting in a chair and she said, here you go, daddy, here is dinner for you. So I looked at this, and I said, this is great. Took the food. I acted like it was great. Oh, that is so good. I took it. I put it behind my, behind my back, down in the cushion. Took another food item, down in the cushion, another food item. That was wonderful. Thank you so much. And she said, Daddy, what do you want now? And I said, well, I've just had this huge meal. I would like dessert. So she takes my plate. She runs off, squealing and laughing, goes back to her kitchen, and there she gets a plastic pork chop, and a plastic piece of broccoli, and she brings it back to me. And she says, here you go, Daddy. Here is dessert. <laughs> now, I want you to freeze that scene in your mind for just a second. And I want you to imagine that I'm not there on Christmas Day in my den with my two-year-old in front of me offering me this plate of a plastic pork chop and plastic broccoli. Instead, I want you to imagine that I'm at a restaurant. I've just had my meal. The waitress comes and she says, would you like des dessert? And I say, yes, I would love that. And I order a dessert. She goes back to the kitchen and then she comes back out and on a plate, she has a plastic pork chop and a plastic piece of broccoli. And she puts it in front of me and says, here you go, sir. Here's your dessert what would I say? You've got to be kidding me. I'm not eating this. I mean, first of all, I ordered dessert, and you've brought me a pork chop and broccoli, and that is not dessert, at least in my book. And the second thing is, I don't know how to explain this to you, but these are plastic 
items, and I cannot eat plastic. It does nothing for me nutritionally. I don't like the taste of it. There is no way that I'm eating this food. I'm not paying for it, and I'm likely never coming back to this restaurant, and I would like to speak to your manager right now. Now, leave that scene. Go back to me and my den on Christmas Day, 2010, There's my daughter standing in front of me with a plate, a plastic pork chop, plastic broccoli, big grin on her face, anticipating my reaction. What do you think I said to her? Do you think I said the same thing that I would have said to this waitress? Do you you think I leaned down and said, now, sweetie, this is not going to work. Look, you brought me a plastic pork chop and plastic broccoli. Now, let me tell you something. Daddy doesn't like broccoli anyway. I know mommy says you guys have to eat it, but daddy doesn't because I pay for this house and I figure if I pay for it, I do not have to eat broccoli. But see, this is plastic and I asked for dessert not this. And if you can't figure out how to make a real dessert, then as far as I'm concerned, we're done here and there's nothing else that we need to talk about. Do you think I said that to my daughter? Absolutely not. I said, thank you so much. This is wonderful. And I acted like it just came out of Paula Dean's kitchen that this was the best thing I had ever eaten in my life. And it was that wonderful. Why did I do that? Why with a waitress this would be unacceptable, but with my two-year-old daughter, it was just the most wonderful thing in the world. Because Elizabeth is my child. And while plastic does nothing for me nutritionally, and while I did not need that food, I wanted her to keep coming back to me. And as she gave me plastic items, that meant I had the chance to deepen my relationship with my daughter. And I cared nothing for the plastic food, but I care everything about her heart. And in that moment, and in those moments, I was able to connect with her heart. That experience reminds me of a profound spiritual truth that we find throughout Scripture, which is this. God does not need anything that we bring to Him. However, He asks us to give to Him because while it does nothing for Him, it does a tremendous amount for us. And through that, God is able to deepen our relationship with Him through the act of giving. And so we're starting a series today that we're going to look at over the next several weeks about giving. And the first thing I want to do this morning is to look at the fact that God does not need what we bring to Him. So if you've got a Bible with you, turn to Acts chapter 17. Uh, This is a passage about Paul going into the ancient city of Athens. Uh, When Paul went into Athens, he eventually made his way to a place called the Areopagus. The Areopagus sits just below the hill where the Pantheon is. It sits above the downtown uh, district where all the commerce would have happened. The Areopagus was a large rock, and that was where the city officials met and philosophers met. This was where the business of Athens took place. It was named after Ares, who was the Greek god of war, uh, the word pagus in Greeks, uh, Greek means rocky hill, and so this was the rocky hill of Ares. Some of your Bibles may refer to this as Mars Hill. Mars was the Roman god of war, the same god, the Roman name was Mars, and so it was Mars Hill or Ares Hill or the Areopagus. Paul walked into Athens, 
And when he went into that city, he saw that there were statues to gods all over the city. Everywhere he went, there was a different statue to a different god. A statue to Aphrodite, the goddess of love. Or to Poseidon, the god of the sea. Or to Apollo, the god of the sun. Or to Zeus, the chief of gods and the ruler of Mount Olympus. Everywhere he went, there were all these statues to all these various gods. And he even came across one statue to a god that was in the inscription read to an unknown god. In other words, in case we missed one, in case there's some god somewhere out there that we haven't figured out who he is, we're giving this statue to him, to this unknown god. Paul appears before the Areopagus to all of these leaders of the city, and he uses that statue as a starting point for his message. And he says to them, you worship this unknown God. I'm here to tell you who that God is. That God, this unknown God, is the creator of the universe. He is the one true God. And then notice in verses 24 and 25, this is what Paul says about God. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Paul said these words in contrast to how the Greeks viewed their gods. They lived in temples that they had constructed. They needed the worship and the sacrifice of humans. And Paul says, our God is not like that. The one true God is not served by humans. He exists apart from us. In other words, God did not create mankind because he was lonely. God does not rely on us for his sufficiency. God does not need us in any way. There's another passage that basically says the same thing. This is Psalm 50. In Psalm 50, God is addressing the requirement that he gave to the Israelites about bringing sacrifices to him. And so in the Old Testament, it was established that they were to bring the first of their livestock, the first of their fruits to God uh, as a sacrifice to God. And here's what God said in Psalm 50. I have no need of a bull from your stall or of goats from your pens. For every animal of the forest is mine, and the cattle on a thousand hills. So God says, hey, I want you to give. I need you to give the first of your animals, the first of your fruits, the first of everything. I want you to give it to me. But then God turns around and says, but I don't need it. I own everything. Everything is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills is mine. I mean, we would say today, the vaults in a thousand banks are all mine. I own it all, all the gold, all the money, everything that you see, I own it. I do not need anything that you bring to me any more than Christmas of 2010. I needed for my existence a plastic pork chop. God says, I do not need what you bring to me. So this begs the question. If that is the case, if God is completely self-sufficient, if He does not need anything that we bring to Him, then why does God ask us to give? Why are we asked by God throughout the Bible 
to give to him. Here's why. Even though God does not need it, we need it. We need giving to God, not for his benefit, but for us. God doesn't need it any more than I need that plastic pork chop. But you and I need to give to God. When I read through Scripture, there are three reasons that God asks us to give. Two have to do with our relationship with God, and one has to do with our relationship with money. And so God asks us to give for these three reasons. We're going to look at the first one today, and I'm going to go ahead and give you the punchline. So if you fall asleep or have to go to the bathroom or suddenly become interested in your Instagram account, here is the reason that God asks us to give. Giving grows my trust in God. Uh, again, when I give, it is not for God's benefit. God owns the cattle on a thousand hills. God owns all the gold in a thousand Fort Knoxes. God owns all the Bitcoin ever created out of thin air, but somebody says it's worth something, so evidently it is. But God owns everything. Everything is His, and yet God asks us to give. And so why? Why does God ask us to give? One of those reasons is because when we give, it grows our faith, it grows our trust in God. Well, look at a passage that illustrates this. This is found in the Old Testament book of Malachi. Uh, if you've got a Bible, Malachi is the last book of your Old Testament. So go to Matthew and then back up one book, um, and you'll, you'll find the book of Malachi. Malachi was written about 400 years before Christ came. And it was written during a time that Israel had drifted away from God. Israel at this point was following God, but only in a superficial kind of way. They, they had really turned their back on God, and they were worshiping other gods while still sort of going through the religious motions of worshiping God. And so God, during this time, raised up this prophet named Malachi. And through the words of Malachi, he condemned the nation of Israel for their practices. And when you read this book, it's very short. It's only four chapters. When you read it, you find that it's in this question and answer format. So God would make a statement. The Israelites would question this statement or this claim of God. And then God would give proof that what he had said was true. And so it starts off by God saying, I have loved you. To the Israelites, I have loved you. And then the Israelites, because of their arrogance, because they had moved so far away from God, they then turn and they question God and they say, how? How have you loved us? In other words, God, you've made this statement, but we don't see it. What have you done for us lately, God? You know, you say you've loved us. How have you loved us? And then God gives his answer, proving how he has, had loved the nation of Israel. In the next chapter, God says, you have defiled my altar. And just as arrogantly, they turn and they question God and they say, how? How have we defiled your altar? You've got some explaining to do, God. We don't see it. Show us the proof. How have we defiled your altar? And then God gives explanation and show them how they had defiled his altar. When you get to chapter 3, God does the same thing, but it's in regards to, to this thing we call the tithe and how they were not giving to God. So chapter 3, here's what we read. Will a man rob God? 
yet you rob me. So there's the accusation. Will a man rob God, yet you rob me? But you ask so arrogantly, how do we rob you, God? You say we've robbed you. We've not stolen anything from you. How have we robbed you? Here's God's answer. In tithes and offerings, you are under a curse, the whole nation of you, because you are robbing me. Bring the whole tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. Now, if you're new to church, that word tithe simply means tenth. And it was something God established early in the nation of Israel. God said, I am giving you all, everything that you have comes from me. I'm giving you everything. And what I want you to do in return is to give a tenth of what I've given you back to me. To remind you that everything I have, everything that you have comes from me. You can keep it all. You can use every bit of it except that tenth. You give it to me and the 90% you keep and you use as you see fit. And so he says to the nation of Israel, look, you're robbing me. Well, how are we robbing you? We had a deal. Everything that you have comes from me. And yet you're not living up to your end of the bargain. You're holding back your tithes. So Israel wasn't giving their tithes, and God says, look, you're robbing me, but not just that, they were robbing themselves as well. Look at what God said next. Test me in this, says the Lord Almighty, or you could translate that, trust me in this, and see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out so much blessing that you will not have enough room for it. I will prevent pests from devouring your crops, and the vines in your fields will not cast their fruit, says the Lord Almighty. Then all the nations will call you blessed, for yours will be a delightful land, says the Lord Almighty. So get how God has framed his argument. He says, the first problem is you have robbed me. You have kept back from me what is rightfully mine. You have stolen from me that part of what I've given to you that I have asked back. And so you're holding back from me. You're robbing me. But it's more than that. It's not just that you're robbing me. You're robbing yourselves as well. In other words, you have said this. Everything that we have, we're going to hold on to it because we don't think we can trust God. We're going to hold tightly to what we've what we've acquired because we don't know if God will provide for us and he's asked us to give 10% back, but we can't do that because we don't know that we can trust God. And then God here in this next section flips the script on him. And he says, you're holding everything back, but see, you're forgetting that I'm God. And by holding it back, you're holding back the blessings that I could give to you. You see, as God, here's one of the things, it's, it's one of the job duties, like when your name on the job title is God, here's one of the duties underneath. You control the weather. I mean, it's just part of being God. When I accepted the job, that's what they told me I had to do. So, you know, I'm God and I control how much it rains and doesn't rain. I, I can prevent pests from devouring your crops. I can cause your trees to bear fruit or not bear fruit. You say, I'm God, and so you have held back from me because you don't think you can trust me, not realizing that when you give to me, I can more than provide for you. So God says to the Israelites, here's what I want you to do. 
I want you to give for two reasons. One, when you give, you acknowledge that everything comes from me. That 100% of what you've gotten comes from me. So when you give, you're acknowledging that. And the second thing is when you give and then I more than provide for all of your needs, then you know that you're able to trust me. At the end of the day, that's what I want. I want you to know that you can trust me. Now, when it comes to this passage, there are two extremes that people take that are both wrong. Christians will read this passage and they will sometimes go to the extremes on either side. One extreme is this. They read this passage as a formula for a get-rich-quick scheme. And they will say, here's what the Bible says. If I will give 10%, then God will cause my vats to overflow with new wine, that, that my barns won't be able to hold it all. And they treat God like the genie from the movie Aladdin. They take this passage as the equivalent of rubbing the lamp three times, and if I do that, I get my three wishes. God will make all my wildest dreams come true because I have given, and so God will give me all of this in return. Here's the problem with that view. The central focus of this passage is not about the money. It's about trusting in God. And yes, many times when we give, God blesses us financially, However, if that's the only blessing you're after, you're missing the greater blessings. And I personally know a lot of people with a lot of wealth who would give up that wealth so that they could have a healthy marriage or they could have joy in their family so that they could have children that loved and followed the Lord so they could have things like peace in their life. And so God many, many times blesses us financially. When we give and it's tight, and there's not a whole lot left over at the end of the month, and we're not sure how we're going to make this payment. And when we do that, and then God blesses us financially, it shows us that we can trust God, and that's what He's after. But more than that, when you get into a pattern of tithing to God, what you see is God blessing you in so many other ways as well. So one extreme, the wrong extreme, is to treat this like a formula or a a get-rich-quick kind of deal. The other extreme is to look at this passage and to say, well, this doesn't apply at all. Because now in Christ, we are free from the law. And in the New Testament, the tithe is no longer an obligation. And so really, this passage does not apply to me at all because in Christ, I am no longer bound by the law. Now, technically, that is exactly right. If you're a follower of Christ, there's no law here telling you that you have to tithe. If you're a follower of Christ, you're not under the obligation of the law. However, the principle still applies. God still desires our trust. God still wants us to give because the relationship that we have with Him grows as we give. When you read the New Testament, here's what you discover. The language changes from this idea of a tithe that is an obligation or like a tax, and it changes from that to a privilege or a joy. It's no longer, well, gosh, I've got to do this. I've got to do this thing because God's going to be mad at me and He's going to be angry and I've got to do this because if I don't, then, you know, then God's going to smite me from His throne. It's no longer that way. Now it's, I get to do this. And it's a joy and a privilege to be a part of what God is doing. 
Let me point you to one passage that illustrates this. This is from 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Uh, these are the words of Paul. Here's what Paul wrote. Remember this. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And whoever sows generously will also reap generously. Each of you should give what you have decided in your heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion or under obligation or as a tax or as you know, some kind of duty, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver, giving because it's a joy. And God is able to bless you abundantly, so that in all things, at all times, having all that you need, you will abound in every good work. God here changes the way that we view it. And it's no longer this obligation. It's no longer a tax. It's I get to do this. And as I do this, my trust in God grows and God pours out His blessings on my life in so many ways. Again, the reason that God asks us to give is because when we do so, we are acknowledging that everything that we have comes from Him. This was easy in an agrarian society to understand. I mean, they depended upon God for the rain. They depended upon God to keep pests from devouring their crops. They very well understood this truth. Sometimes we forget it because we go to work and we work hard and we get that paycheck and we think, I earned this paycheck. This is mine. This money I'm depositing, this is mine. And we forget who gave you the ability to work hard. You say, well, I'm I'm really smart, and I got the degrees, and because of these degrees, I got this good job, and that's why I'm able to bill so much per hour because of this degree. Who gave you that intellectual capacity? Who put you in the position in life to get that job? How were you born in the United States of America? How, what, what did you do to choose your parents? Everything that you have, everything that I've been given comes from God. And so when we give, we're acknowledging that fact. God, I'm giving you this, and I, I remember that 100% of what, what I have comes from you. I, I'm, I'm giving you 10%, and I'm using the other 90%, but it's all yours. And the second reason God asks us to give is because when we do, and then God provides, it grows our trust in Him. And at the end of the day, that's what God wants and I will say, especially, especially for men, this is so key in our trust in God growing. If we can trust God with our money, everything else in life just seems to fall like dominoes. Because money is such a big thing and it has such a hold on our lives. If we can say, God, I trust you with my finances, then it's easy in our marriage and with our kids, and our job and every other area in life to say, God, I trust you here as well. It just bleeds over into those other areas. Now, many of you in this room, what I've talked about this morning, you know it. In fact, you know it well, and you have practiced it for decades. And you have seen in your life how you can never outgive God, and everything that you've given to God, you have gotten it back so much more than you ever gave. You understand this principle very well. But there may be some of you, and, and you don't. Either you just didn't know, you really weren't sure about all of this. Maybe you're new to the faith and you've never heard this taught before. Or maybe it's one of those areas where you're just scared to take that step of faith. And you know and you understand and you've read the passages and you've heard it preached on. 
But you've just said, hey, in my situation, with what we've got going on right now, we just can't do it. And here's my encouragement to you. Don't miss out on what God has for you. Yeah, you're holding back and you're saving this a little bit and you think that's making your life better, but, it, but you're missing out on the blessings of God. And so take that step of faith. Take that, take that leap where you're saying, God, I am going to do exactly what Malachi said. I'm going to test you in this and I'm going to give. And then you get to that point, watch how God will more than provide for you. And in the process, not just provide for you financially, but grow your faith as well.